Well, thank you for that good singing. Let's take our Bibles now and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you came to church this morning and didn't know what we were going to preach on, after all that music, you should have a pretty good hint. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're looking at the, we're going to finish up this chapter today. I don't think there's anything we talk about more than love. We have it in our poems, and we sing them in our songs. We have them in our novels. Uh, love is talked about everywhere and under almost all conditions, and yet I think real biblical love is a rarity. It's very uncommon to have the kind of love that's being described here in the, in the New Testament scriptures. Uh, to love others is difficult. It's easy, to love, it's easy to love those that love us. It's easy to love the lovable. It's not so easy to love those that don't like us, people that uh, perhaps we don't respect, people that have misused us. Um, those types of people are much more difficult to love, and yet Scripture calls us to love them. Uh, in our vacation last week, we were traveling around and talked to some folks, and, uh, and we, we talked about uh, to one family who had been a very close-knit, loving family. They, they would have called themselves a few years ago very warm, very close, very loving. Uh, today, they don't talk to each other. Uh, they haven't talked to each other, some of them, in a couple years. Uh, the, the family is splintered. There's no love there. There's no warmth there. There's just destruction. The family came to uh, verbal blows over COVID differences, differences of opinion on that. And I don't care this morning what you think about COVID or any of the ramifications of that. There's always a COVID issue. There are always hundreds of things to divide over, to argue about, to, to break our families over, to lose love over. Always has been, always will be. And so that's just another round. But here's a family that once was warm, once was loving, described itself that way, certainly seemed to be that way, that no longer will even speak to one another. So it's no, reason, uh, no question as why in the New Testament scriptures we are commanded 55 times to love one another. We're not suggested. It's not an urge. It's not a possibility. It's a commandment from Almighty God to love one another. And we say, well, how, how can God command us to do those kinds of things? I mean, a lot of people are very unlovable. Am I, uh, there's awful people in this world. Am I to love those people? The problem is that we don't understand biblical love. Biblical love is not the warm fuzzies necessarily. Biblical love is action. And the 15 or 16 descriptions we have of love in this text of Scripture are all are active verbs telling us that, act, that action is involved in what biblical love is all about. We are to love those that are even unlovely because God has called us to do that and because that is what God himself does. You know, if we, if we looked at these words here in verses 4 through verse 8 at the descriptions, if, if we would replace the word love with the name Jesus, uh, I think we'd have a good idea what love is about. And as we do that today, I don't think it's harming the text. I want to do that with you. Look at verse 4. And let's put Jesus' name in place of love here. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind, is not jealous. Jesus does not brag and is not arrogant. Jesus does not act unbecomingly. Jesus does not seek his own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Jesus does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things, Jesus never fails. That's the epitome of love, Jesus. It these characteristics describe Jesus. 
and they should increasingly, according to our passage, describe you and I as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind, we couldn't even possibly be rescued from sin if it wasn't for the love of God and Jesus. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. Jesus came, as already been mentioned in word and prayer this morning, he died in our place. He took our sins upon himself because sin corrupts, sin pollutes, sin destroys, sin eternally condemns. Jesus Christ took all that on himself out of the pure motive of love that you and I might be rescued and delivered from the power and the corruption and the consequences of sin. And so Jesus is the perfect example of love and he fits our text very well as we put his name there. Today we're going to finish up the descriptions of love and then we're going to go on to look at love defended. And I want to look at that with you today. Let's start with the descriptions. We've already looked at 12 descriptions of love. We're going to look at the final three this morning, starting in verse 7, where it says that love, in verse 7, bears all things, love believes all things. So our, our 13th description is love believes all things. The New International translates this, love always trusts. This means that love is basically not suspicious. It takes the kindest view of others in every circumstance as long as it possibly can. When love sees somebody doing something wrong, they don't immediately jump to the conclusion that that person is a bad person. Uh, they don't immediately find fault. They give the person the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps he saw somebody yelling at their children or, or being unkind to their spouse or some other act of anger and are immediately, are nat- by nature, immediately think this is a bad person. And yet we don't know the circumstances. We don't know if this is a characteristic of that person on a regular basis. We, we don't know a lot of details here, and so we give benefit of the doubt as long as we possibly can to such a person. Love is anxious on the positive side to think the best of others. We look forward to thinking the best of one another. And love it gets no joy out of the failures of, of others. It gives every reasonable doubt. Now, love is not naive or gullible. Don't, be, don't get me there wrong there. Uh, we have to make decisions. We have to use discernment. Uh, we can't always blow off the sinful activities of other people. But at the same time, love gives every benefit of the doubt. It believes the best as long as it possibly can. Instead of jumping to the conclusion that something is wrong or somebody is wrong, we give the best possible benefit of the doubt as long as we possibly can. That's what love is. It believes all things. And it believes all things because it hopes all things. That's our next description. And this one could go two different directions. First of all, the direction of wishing the best for others. Love wishes the best for others. Do you wish the best for others? Love never says, I hope you fail. Love never says, I hope you strike out. Uh, Love never says, I hope your kids turn out poorly because you didn't raise them like I raised mine. Uh, Love never says anything like that. And this other direction is that love never gives up. There's, there's time, in, for example, in every parent's life. By the way, we're having a baby dedication next week. So if you're involved with that, that's great. If you want to be involved, let me know. If your kid is already in college, it's too late. But, uh, <laughs> but let me know about that. But uh, there's a time in every parent's life where they want to give up. Usually the first couple of weeks are one of those times when the baby won't sleep and he's colicky and all that kind of stuff. I'm not even sure what that is, but kids have it. And, they are, and, they're, and as time goes on, there's other times we just want to throw up our hands maybe and say, well, this isn't working. I don't think I want to, I want to give up here. 
And yet love never gives up. And as we go through life, we find all sorts of situations like that where, where we just want to give up. But love never gives up. Today, your life might be a mess, and your child might be a mess, and your child might be rebelling against everything you ever taught them, and everything you stand for. Today, maybe your spouse doesn't love you, or at least you don't think they do. Today, your friends may have disappointed you deeply and hurt, and hurt you deeply. Today, your church may have let you down at a moment when you really needed your church. And yet, love never gives up. I was reading a book on depression this week on the life of Charles Spurgeon. And there's an example given there. In all books on depression from a Christian perspective, they almost always turn to uh, the story of Elijah back in 1 Kings. Because Elijah was probably the, one of the most depressed people in the scriptures. And, uh, and I, so I've read this many times. But there was a wrinkle here that I had never thought about quite before. Uh, we find Elijah in, in a cave after he'd done great things. But Jezebel's chasing him down. He's fearful. He thinks he's come to the end of his run. He, he thinks he's going to die. He thinks he's the only one left walking with God on all the planet. And he is telling God, I am tired of life. Please take my life. That's Elijah, one of the greatest men in all of Scripture. But what this book mentioned that I thought was very helpful is that Elijah didn't know the future. The pain of his depression had lied to him about the future. And he believed that lie. We know the story. We know it a few days later after the Lord got a hold of his heart, Elijah would go forth to set up to anoint kings and, and prophets and successors. And he would be one of the two men in scripture who would be actually taken for this life without death. <laughs> if he had known that, would he have been hiding in a cave feeling sorry for himself? No. What Elijah needed though, apparently, was not to know the future. He needed to know the God of the future. He needed to love the one who loved him. Love never gives up because we know there's a God who never gives up and a God who loves us. And then thirdly, today, this morning, love endures all things. The NIV calls it perseverance. Love perseveres. So what happens when we can no longer bear all things and believe all things and hope all things? What happens then? What happens when hope seems to be pretty much gone. As someone has said, love cannot be conquered. Even in the midst of our situation where it seems hopeless, love cannot be conquered. We don't stop loving because someone else has stopped loving us. Love cannot be conquered. The term is a military term. It means to sustain in, in, in an assault. The enemy's coming, and this word is an idea that you sustained. You, you, had, you, you had victory in the midst of assault. That's the meaning of this word. That's how it's used in a military sense. And so we have now this, the idea that when you're under assault, when the world is turned against you, when life is hard, people has, have, have hurt you, in the midst of all that, we find that love sustains us like nothing else can and does. I'm not much of a game player. I, the last video game I understood was Pac-Man. <laughs> and so if I remember Pac-Man correctly, uh, this was his little whatever he was, running around chewing up little bullets or pellets or whatever they were. And every once in a while he ran across a power pellet. If, the, my, if I'm wrong on this, you gamers tell me later. 
if you can remember. He, he eats the power pellet and suddenly has a new burst of energy and strength. Well, love is our power pellet. It gives us that energy and that strength in the midst of discouragement, despair, depression, assault. Love endures all things. And so we've seen the descriptions of love. Let's move on to love defended. Paul wants to talk about love defended, defended as the greatest of all virtues. The greatest of all virtues, starting with verse 8, when he says love never fails. Now here's what I want to mention here. In the first three verses of this chapter, and this is a distinction that you might, might be helpful to you. In the first three verses of this chapter, Paul proved that no matter what we did, if we didn't have love, we are nothing. No matter what we did, if we didn't have love, we are nothing. The latter verses, verses 8 on down, he's going to prove that no matter what we have, if we do not have love, we are nothing. No matter what we do, and no matter what we possess, if we do not have love, we are nothing. That is the burden of this wonderful chapter. Now here he mentions two things that we could possess that, would, that, do, that do not compare with love. Two things. First of all, great spiritual gifts. And we'll spend most of our time on this one. Great spiritual gifts. Verse 8, Paul says, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. First, I want to say Paul does not minimize his spiritual gifts. He spends all of chapter 12 talking about the, the purpose of spiritual gifts and, and, and why he gives them to us and how wonderful they are. So he's not minimizing spiritual gifts. But he is saying four things that we'll be working through as we go forward. So this is basically the summary before the, before the essence, before the basis. Here it is. Gifts will pass away, but love stays. Number one. Number two. Gifts are partial, love is complete. Number three, gifts are like childishness, where love is like maturity and adulthood. Number four, gifts are like looking into a blurry mirror compared to seeing someone in real life. Four different things as we work through here. So love is greater than spiritual gifts, as go on in two different ways. Let's take a look here. First of all, love is perfect and gifts are limited. In verse 8, I've already read that to you. Love, love never fails, but gifts, these gifts will be done away with. And the word for never fails here is a word for uh, a flower losing its petals because it's wilted away. If you would go to my office right now and look at my, on the windowsill of my room, you will see a very sad flower or or. Uh, plant. I don't know what it is. It's very sad. It sits in my windowsill, drooping and hanging down and dropping whatever's left of it. Because I never look at it. I never water it. Some wonderful person, probably my wife, put it on the windowsill, assuming I'd take care of it. I didn't. <laughs> and as a result, it's wilted and dead. Well, that's what he says here. Love never wilts. Love never dries up. Love never loses its petals. Love never withers up and dies. Love is like the tree planted by the rivers of life in Psalm 1-3 that never run dry. With that in mind, in verse 9 he says, For we know in part, we prophesy in part, uh, these Christians had become so wrapped up in their gifts, their spiritual gifts, 
is what they dreamed of, it's what they lusted for, it's what they wanted to pursue. But at best, Paul says, these are only partial things. They have a point, they have a purpose, but they're only partial. They're not complete. They're not enough. Even the apostles couldn't prophesy everything. They didn't didn't know all the future. Um, even Even the apostles didn't have all supernatural knowledge. They didn't know all things. They were humans. And so even the apostles, who were greatly gifted, only knew things partially. But he says concerning this partiality that love is limitless. Love never runs out of love. It always has more to give, and and we're always to give more. By the way, I I would say this while we're going through this. This is not a passage of Scripture that, that, that is teaching us to have other people love us. It's not a passage of scripture we read through and say, who's doing this for me? It's a passage of scripture that says, who are you doing it for? It's directed to us, not to the other person out there. And so as he thinks about that, there's always room to grow in love. You'll never get to the end of that. Love has no limit. So love is greater than spiritual gifts and that it has no limit. Secondly, love is permanent. And the gifts will cease. In verse 10 he says this, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. This is Paul's major point, so make sure you grab it. No matter how wonderful certain gifts are, they're they're like the leaves on a tree that will one day fall off. But not love. If you're going to get excited about anything in life, get excited about love. It is permanent. It will last. It will stand the test of time. Love is permanent in contrast to prophecies and tongues and knowledge, which is not. All these cease to exist because they cease to be needed, but love will always be needed, even into eternity. Okay, that's all the easy part of the sermon, for a while anyway. Now let's get down to it. For those that need to wake up, slap yourself on the face a couple times, look up here, I saw a few of you do it, and... and Put your thinking caps on, because here's where it gets more interesting in a hard way, I guess you might say. Because in verse 8, he says this, um, that love never fails, but prophecy will will be done away, tongues will cease, knowledge will be done away, for we know in part we prophesy in part, and here it is, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Here's the easy part. Something is going to happen. Something is going to come that will cause these great supernatural spiritual gifts to cease. Something is going to happen. And what is that? The perfect is going to come. When the perfect comes, these things will cease to be. That's not particularly hard. What is hard is what is the perfect And for whatever reason, God didn't decide to tell us what the perfect is here. He didn't lay out for us the perfect and say, here it is. Here's what it is. And so good, solid Bible teachers and commentators and and scholars over the centuries have discussed what that possibly could be. What is the perfect? Because when it comes, these things cease. And there's three good possibilities held by good, solid uh, evangelical scholars. There's three of them. I'm going to give you all three. The first one is this. 
when the scriptures are complete, when the New Testament canon is complete, when the final revelation written in the word of God is complete, then the prophecies and the tongues, especially prophecy and knowledge, will cease because it's no longer needed. Now, over the, the years, I have gone back and forth in, on these different possibilities. And right now, I've warmed up quite a bit to this one. And the reason I have is because the context of the chapter is revelatory gifts. That is, the God giving us revelation. God giving us information. God giving us inspired truth. That's the whole context here. And so it fits perfectly that the perfect is talking about things of that nature. And therefore, where, it, where do we find the perfect, complete, final revelation of God? And by the way, the word perfect, if you're taking notes, is usually translated in the Bible as complete. Not perfect in the sense that it has no flaws, but complete. So it, so it is very likely he's talking about the closure of Scripture. The complete Scriptures have been given to us. Everything that God wants to reveal to us for this age is now in this book. And therefore, there is no need for more revelation. There's no need for more prophecies. There's no need for more supernatural uh, knowledge because it's all right here. Our goal, and never once in Scripture are we told, look for some supernatural uh, knowledge, look for some additional prophecy. The Scriptures turn it back to itself. Look into the Word of God. And the word of God will teach you how you are to live, how you are to worship, and how you are to serve Christ. And so I warmed up to this particular view. I think it's probably the best view. The word of God is complete, and we need no more revelations today because it's complete in his word. A second view, however, is that it's talking about the maturity of the church. When the church itself is mature, then no longer will we need prophecy and supernatural knowledge. Go over to Ephesians chapter 4 for just a moment. This is based on Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 13. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11. It says, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until... We all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So it says the Lord has given us certain gifted individuals, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, until the church becomes mature. So it says that here. Now the question is, when does the church become mature? Uh, some people that I respect very highly I believe that the maturity he's talking about here is when the church finally, in love, stopped becoming divisive between Jews and Gentiles. One of the great issues of the early church found in Acts as well as the epistles is that the Jews and the Gentiles struggled getting along because they'd come from such different backgrounds. With love, ultimately that battle would go away and peace would reign and love would reign between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church and the church would become mature. And that's a possibility. However, as I look at the Bible and as I look at church history, I'm not sure the church ever got that mature. Uh, I'm not sure they ever came to that level of love. And so others who hold somewhat the same view said the perfection takes place not in this era 
but at the second coming of Christ. So that when Christ comes back, the church is finally complete and mature, and no longer do we need prophecy or supernatural revelations. That's the second view. The third view is the eternal state. If we want to use, make the word perfect mean the uh, idea of absolute perfection, as we think of perfection, no flaws, no sins, then only in the eternal state will we be totally without sin. And so he's speaking of the eternal state. So all three views are held by different very fine theologians. I wouldn't be upset with any of them, but I do believe the first one's right. And I believe he's saying when the word of God is complete, when we have all that he has for us here, we need to turn back to the word of God and not to additional revelations at all. But now, now wait a minute. Let me, get, let me get easier for a moment. Whatever he meant by that, the point is crystal clear. Don't miss the point. Paul was not trying to make an argument theologically about these things. He was making a point. The point was this, is that gifts are temporary, love is permanent. So whatever position you come away with on that, gifts are temporary, love is permanent. I do want to get now a little difficult again, and I want you to go back to verse 8, and notice, and those of you that are careful Bible scholars, those who really want to dig into the Word, will notice even in the English text, you don't need to know Greek, just read your English, you will notice that there's a distinction between tongues and prophecy and knowledge. Notice the distinction in verse 8. If there are gifts of prophecy, notice they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge and prophecy, supernatural knowledge and prophecy will be done away. Notice in verses 9 and 10 when he talks about the perfect, he doesn't mention tongues. So tongues are, tongues are not going to cease when the perfect comes. Tongues are going to cease at a different time. Now, how do we understand this? How do, we, how do we get this and look at this carefully? I want you to note, first of all, that as, uh, as and I'm missing, I'm missing a point I want to make sure I get to you, and that is that here is this verse 8 where it says that they will cease. I want you to note here that uh, this passage, and I'm going to go back. I'm, I'm a, I've lost my note, and I want you to get this. So here we go. All right, here's something. You, you, you can't have lunch without knowing this. Okay? So here it is. The verb that says they will cease is in the passive voice, active tense, transitive mood. Aren't you happy I found my note? <laughs> right? Isn't that wonderful that I just gave that to you? It, it's kind of like a, a comedy show I saw the other day in which a doctor was telling a, this sick elderly man all the things that was wrong with him using the most esoteric me- medical language he could use. And the poor guy was just sitting there with his eyes bonged out, having no idea what he meant. And the nurse turned to the guy and in three words told him what he had in plain English. Don't you wish you had a nurse like that when you're talking to your doctors sometimes? You kind of sit alongside. Okay, now we're at the word will cease concerning tongues. Here we go. This is in the intransitive mood middle voice. Great, you said. Now I'm ready for lunch. 
Your theological nurse turns to you and says this. That simply means that they will cease of themselves. The middle voice means it acts on itself. Nothing has to happen to it. Nothing has to have to come along to stop tongues. They will cease in and of themselves when their purpose is complete. That's what that means. When is their purpose complete? Go over one page to chapter 14, verse 22, and notice this. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Tongues are a sign, a sign gift. They will cease to exist, Paul says, when their sign has been completed, when what they point to has happened. What does the gift of tongues point to? Well, in verse 21, in 20 and 21, it says tongues are a sign of judgment against the unbelieving Jews for the rejection of God and especially the rejection of the Messiah. Judgment would come because of the rejection of God. In 70 A.D., that judgment came and Jerusalem was destroyed and Israel was scattered all over the world. Now, I'm not going to go any further with that. and You're probably happy I'm not. But I will be fleshing that out in detail and carefully as we go through chapter 14. But for now, file that away in your memory bank and think about it a little bit. Tongues would cease, Paul says, in and of themselves when they no longer had a purpose. When they were no longer a sign of judgment, because judgment has already come, they no longer point to anything and therefore they will cease. And in my opinion, biblical tongues have never been spoken since 70 AD. But don't get too excited about that until I can come back and show that to you more carefully. Again, I, don't, I want you not to miss the point. The point is this, gifts are temporary, love is permanent. Verses 11 and 12, he gives us two illustrations to show the difference between life now and the way life will be in the future from his perspective, from where he lived right there. The first illustration is the difference between being a child and being a, a mature adult. Verse 11 says this, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child and think like a child and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. When we were children... Our language and our feelings and our actions and our thoughts were all childish, weren't they? But when we grow up, we put away those childish things of speaking and feeling and acting and begin to act like an adult. Now, I personally, I enjoy watching children play. I enjoy them setting up their little, little stuffed animals in a little row and, and looking at those animals and, and making up stories and imagination and, and talking to their animals as if they were real. I, I, I enjoy, they can do that for hours. I enjoy that. Some of you do too. But I think if I would set up my stuffed animals and do that this afternoon, <laughs> and you found out about it, uh, I would then be looking for another line of work pretty quickly. Right? Adults don't usually do that, at least not for very long. Uh, that, that doesn't, but we, so we move from childhood to adulthood, but we, we, we do it slowly, don't we? We don't do it all at once. It's, it's a step-by-step process. As we, as we grow up, slowly but surely, we stop feeling like children and thinking like children and acting like children and become more and more mature and more like a, an adult. That doesn't mean that children, the way they thought in their childhood was wrong. 
It just means it was inadequate for an adult. And so he's saying here, look, today, if you're li- you Corinthians in particular are living like children, you're thinking and acting and behaving and, and, and feeling just like children, like, like immature babies. It's time to grow up. It's time to, to move forward into a maturity, into adulthood, and become what, what God wants us to, to be, the mature people God has called us to be. Now, I know we say this all the time, but I, I have to say it occasionally, like every week. Folks, the only way you grow up is through reading and absorbing and applying the word of truth. There is no shortcut. I, I ran into a number of people in our vacation and a number of situations, a number of churches uh, in the South recently in which I've seen so many individuals, so many situations, so many churches where the word of God is not magnified, where people talk about it but don't read it, who don't love it, who don't look into it. And that happens not just down there, but it happens everywhere. And, and people think they're doing quite well if they read a verse here and there, come to church on occasion. But my friends, let me just be just so honest with you. You are, you are shortchanging your life. You are harming your soul. You're dishonoring your God. You're living a life of a baby when you could be living a life of maturity and understanding the glories and the wonders of Jesus Christ. Why would anyone do that to themselves? My, my heart is so burdened for so many people I run into, not, not necessarily here, but everywhere, whose lives could be so different, whose worlds could be so different, whose families could be so different, who, who could be honoring Christ in wonderful ways, who don't, because they never grew up. And so often they don't even know they've never grown up, and so often they don't know they need to. My friends, I hope that's not you. Don't be like children in your knowledge. Grow up. One day, it will no longer be these gifts. They will be gone, but love will endure. Illustration number two, verse 12. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I've also been fully known. His second illustration is it's like looking into a mirror. Mirrors in those days were polished brass or or some such subject, and, and they did let reflect, but not like mirrors we have today. They were kind of blurry compared to mirrors we have today. So you look at yourself in one of those mirrors, and you saw yourself, but not real clearly. And so he's saying the same thing here right now. We see in a mirror dimly. Now, I think perhaps he now has jumped to the future at this point. And he's talking about what, what will happen in the future. Right now, even with the full revelation of the Scriptures at our disposal, and we can read and study and, and apply. Even with all of that, we still see kind of blurry-like. We don't see with crystal clarity because we're in this life, and we still have that, that battle with sin. But one day, when we see him, we will see him for who he is, and we will see us for who we are, and we will see clearly once and for all and forevermore. Won't that be a glorious day? I know I'm sure looking forward to that. Through the word we know in part, in the future we will know fully. Gifts have limited time, 
and limited ability, so we should be focusing on love. That's the first contrast. He contrasts love to these great spiritual gifts, and love comes out the winner. Finally, one more piece, one more verse. Love is contrast with the great virtues of faith and hope, and love, once again, comes out the winner. Verse 13, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Just as love is superior to the great extraordinary spiritual gifts, so love is superior to the great graces of hope and faith. Because love is a characteristic of God. Think about it for a moment. God does not need faith or hope, does he? God does not need faith. God does not need hope because God is the omniscient, almighty one who is sovereign over all things. So he doesn't need hope. God never wakes up and says, I hope this is a good day. I hope things work out for my glory. Never says that. He doesn't need faith and hope. But love is the very essence of God. First John tells us God is love. Not that he's only love, but his, you cannot subtract love from him. Love is a part of the very, very essence of God. And therefore, love endures forever. And for those that, that, that follow him, that our goal is to be more and more like him in that love. And so he says, faith, hope, and love abide now, but the day is coming when only love will endure. Faith and love, hope will not be necessary in eternity, but love will be there forever and evermore between us and all of God's creatures. He's not quite done. The, the Bible, in most of our Bibles, stop right there, chapter 13, but he has two more words that bleed over to chapter 14. He says, pursue love. There's his application. Pursue love. At the, at the end of chapter 12, which probably should be in chapter 13 as well, he says this, I will show you a more excellent way. In chapter 12, he showed him all these great spiritual gifts that are ours. And then he says, but wait a minute, as great as those are, I want to show you something better. I want to show you something that's more excellent than even those things. Then he, then he does. What, what a glory. Aren't you glad he put chapter 13 in the Bible? All, all this about love, then he describes all that. Then he comes to the end of his descriptions and defenses, and he says, now, pursue love. Chase after it. Make it your ambition. Make it your desire to pursue love. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, what do you pursue in life? What are your ambitions? What are your goals? What do you want to become? What are you chasing after? And I could list off all the typical things that people chase after, all the ambitions and all the goals and all the stuff that we go after all the time. And yet, he says, whatever those might be, love is greater. Pursue love. What do you pursue? If you've been coming to this church very long, you probably know that, that I have somewhat of a fixation with graveyards. Uh, don't think I'm morbid. I might be weird, but I'm, I go all the way back to my youth, actually, where I often would visit graveyards and just look around. On my vacation this last week, I went to two graveyards. Uh, one of them made sense. My parents were buried there, so that made sense. But in that graveyard also, and this is weird, I know, when I first started preaching a couple hundred years ago, I went to that graveyard to practice my sermons out loud, preaching to the tombstones. 
Not many of them got saved. They're all still there and a few more, but that was my preaching graveyard. All right? That's, I know that's weird, but here we are. Then this last week, I was walking down a country road, and off to the distance was a, a small country graveyard. I had to go visit. And I looked at the tombstones of people I've never known and will never know. Names, young, old, and in between. Why do I do that outside of being a little weird? I do that because ever since I was a teenager, it reminded me of the transitory nature of life. And I look at every one of those stones, and I said, at one point in time, those people had ambitions, they had dreams, they had goals. Some of them had idyllic lives and, and a joyful life experience. Others had very hard experiences and everything in between. And I look at all those people and I think they're gone. No matter what their experience in this life was, they're gone. And then I look at me and I say, a hundred years from now, nobody will remember my name. Maybe ten years from now, I don't know. But eventually nobody will know who I am. Is that the end? No. Not if you know Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the essence of love. And Jesus Christ came to save us from sin. So that we might be his forever. And on the basis of that, I am called to pursue love because that's who Jesus Christ is. In my pursuit of love, I pursue Christ. In my pursuit of love, I pursue his glory. In my pursuit of love, I pursue pursued all these things that will last forever. No, 100 years from now, nobody will know my name and nobody will care. But God will. And God will know me as I am and he will love me anyway. And so my goal now, my legacy should be this, it's yours too, is that whatever comes in this life, I will have pursued love. I will have loved him. I will have loved you. I will have lived for love because it honors and glorifies the Prince of Love. Pray with me. Father, we have in three sermons dissected and looked carefully at one of the great things of all Scripture, of all life, love itself. What a supreme gift, Lord, you've given us as your children to be loved. What a supreme opportunity we have to pursue love for one another. Lord, uh, we don't realize, I think, how wonderful it is to have the privilege of loving you and one another. And so, Father, may this passage of Scripture speak to our hearts. May your Spirit take it home to each of us, wherever we might be and where we live. We know, Lord, none of us ever perfect love, and we're always in process. But, Lord, may we pursue that which you've called us to pursue, which is love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.